Hey, good morning again. We began this series last Sunday, and before we jump into part two, I need to give a brief overview because a few of you did not hear part one, and you need to have an idea of what we covered so you can get on board today, okay? Here's how we began part one last Sunday. I asked you a question, and I said, what is holding you back from living completely free emotionally, spiritually, and relationally? Great question. You can take an inventory of your life. I mean, if we could peel back the public layers of your life and look at the private truth of who you are, your heart, beliefs, behaviors, marriage, career, friendships, struggles, fears, I mean everything. If we were to lay everything in your life bare, what would we find preventing you from living freely? And here's, here's what I know. If we took a survey of this room, I mean, if we took the time to work our way through this audience, we would discover a lot of stuff. We would uncover addictions, marital problems, family tension, excessive debt, habits, hobbies that are holding us back. And we'd find what we would find would not be a lot different among those who follow Jesus from those who do not. That's what's alarming to me as a pastor. What's alarming to me as a pastor is when I sit down and talk with people, I find out they're struggling with some of the same stuff that people who have virtually no faith or say, hey, you know what, I'm just not a follower of Jesus. They struggle with the exact same stuff, sometimes even in the same amounts. Here's the difference. We in the church are just too embarrassed to talk about it. We try to cover it up. Here's, here's what we talked about in part one. We said a lot of us have accepted Jesus into our hearts. We prayed the prayer, and after we prayed the prayer, many of us moved on with life just as we were living life before we prayed the prayer. We got the you know eternal life insurance or fire insurance, if you can, but then we just moved on with life as it were before, little to no difference in our thinking, values, social life, habits, language, sex life, money, time, politics, entertainment, friends, reading habits, etc. We've matured little beyond our initial spiritual birth. And this is not a new problem. This is a problem that has been going on for literally thousands of years. Paul the apostle, one of the earliest and most influential church leaders who wrote nearly half of the New Testament, had the exact same issues among Christians of his day. Here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, brothers and sisters, I couldn't talk to you like spiritual people, but like unspiritual people, like babies in Christ. So it's possible to be a follower of Jesus, but remain a baby. He says, I gave you spiritual I gave you milk to drink because instead of solid food because you weren't up to it yet. After all these years, you have remained the same. You have remained a babe in Christ. Some of us never became spiritual, emotional, and relational adults. Yet, according to the gospel, Jesus freed us from all bondage, and because he did, we are to live free we are to become slaves to nothing and to no one. So that was the entire message last Sunday. So I encourage you to go and listen to it. If you haven't, you need to pick up part one. Pay attention. We got a lot more details into that message and kind of set everything up. So here's the million-dollar question that we're going to ask today 
that launches us into part two, and here it is. Why do so many of us continue to struggle with bondages? If we are free from all things, that's what the gospel announces. The gospel says because of what Christ has done, because you have placed your faith in him, we are free from all things. We have been liberated. We have been set free then why is it if we are free from all things, we struggle with addictions and bondages? Why do we remain immature? Why do some of us look no different 10 years after our announcement of following Jesus than we did the day before that? Okay? Some of you are like, I wish I would have not come today. All right? Here's how I want to begin today. I want to begin by dispelling a popular myth. And a lot of church people believe it, a lot of you believe it, and I believed it for several years. And hopefully I can do a decent job kind of dismantling this myth. And here's the myth. The reason Christians struggle with X, Y, or Z, and you fill in the blanks with whatever that is, maybe in your own life, you kind of put in there whatever it is. It's because they love sin more than God. They do what they do because instead of doing what God wants them to do, they do what they want to do. They're just disobedient people. That is a myth that I bought into for a long time. I applied it to myself, and every time I would come across someone who professed to follow with Christ and they still had this issue going on in their life or that issue going on in their life, I said, well, they obviously just, you know, They don't care so much about the things of God. They care more about comfort. They care more about themselves. They care more about sin than they do things that are righteous or holy or pure and on and on it goes. And man, I tell you what, I used to judge people based on that myth. I used to judge myself harshly based on that myth. But here's my experience, okay? Most people who attend church and profess to follow Jesus love their kids. They love their spouses, They love their churches. They love their community, their nation. They give to charity. They work hard. They do what they can for others, and they just want to have a little fun and some relaxation in the middle of their busy lives. I no longer believe there is this sinister, sinful, selfish streak in Christians, and that's why they drink too much or cuss a little or find themselves addicted to pain meds or jumping from relationship to relationship or watching things that maybe are not as healthy for them, or whatever, people label as bad. I have found that most people are simply trying to live life and enjoy some pleasures along the way. But here's the problem, and here's why we stay bound. Here's why we stay chained to things. Here's here's why some of us don't look a lot different 10 years later. Here's the problem. Along the way, we find ourselves wandering into some deep weeds, And we end up lost and a long way from where we intended to be. And we never planned to get there, but we ended up there. For instance, we never never intended to have an affair and blow up our family. What we intended was to find some joy and romance and sexual fulfillment again. We had no idea it was going to end up where it did. We never intended to become dependent on pain meds. What we intended to do was to find some relief for the pain and some reasonably good sleep. We never intended to get so far into debt 
What we intended was to borrow just enough to get us through this month. We never intended to hurt our child. What we intended was to warn him not to be disrespectful to adults and to realize consequences follow behaviors. We never intended to get ourselves in the mess we find ourselves in, but here we are. But you see, here's what I've learned. Our intentions do not keep us from becoming addicted or abusive or cut up in an affair. What matters most is our direction, not our intentions. So even though we don't intend to become you fill in the blank, each step we take in the direction of whatever you filled in the blank with eventually entraps us even though it wasn't our intention. Now listen very carefully. This explains so much about how I live my life today. Here's a confession, okay? And I want you to hear my heart today. There are many things that I don't do. If you followed me around, if you paid attention to my lifestyle, you would see the absence of a lot of things in my life. And listen very carefully, this is so important. I don't do this thing or that thing, not because I see X, Y, or Z as sinful or bad or evil or displeasing to God. I choose not to engage in certain activities because I know me. See, you don't know me. In fact, you would look at my life and you would say, I don't understand why you don't, or I don't understand why you do, or I don't understand why you don't, and you think I carry around this list of do's and don'ts. No, no, I don't carry around a list of do's or don'ts. And there are some things absolutely I say don't and do, and I have some of those things. And the reason I have some of those things in my life and the reason why I don't do certain things and I do other things is not because some religious denomination tells me that I can't or, or shouldn't or do or it's not because of the church. It's not really even because of what you might say or somebody else might say. I don't walk down certain roads because I know Scott. And I know that if I'm left to myself, I will get into some deep weeds and I will lose my way. Not, not, not because there's some law above me that's pushing down on me. Not because I signed some piece of paper somewhere and now I've got to hold the line. Not because religion has entrapped me. I know me. You don't. 1 Corinthians 6, listen to what Paul says. I have the freedom to do what? I have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is helpful. I have the freedom to do anything, but I won't be controlled by anything. Folks, listen, it's not because I'm stronger than other people. Do you realize that there are some do's and don'ts in my life? Not because I'm so much stronger, I can maintain the line. It's because I am so much weaker in some areas. I know a few of my limitations. I know what it will take to make me in bondage to some things. Well, let, me, let me give you a real clear example, okay? 
One of the reasons that I don't drink alcohol when I go out with friends is not because I think drinking alcohol in and of itself is evil or sinful or whatever. I know Scott. I know my family. I know the way I think. I know my compulsions. <laughs> and it's just, if, if a little taste is good and it makes me feel good, then a lot will taste great and make me feel great. And uh, after a while, you, you, you'll probably find me at a bar somewhere on Saturday night sipping from the strongest bottle they have singing some sad song. And you'll have to call a designated driver to get me to the first service on Sunday morning. I know me. Well, well, Scott, let me ask you this question, because I get these questions all the time. Um, is this over here sinful? What, what, what about that over there? Can, can I do this over here? Can, can, can I do that over there? I, I don't know. I've not been authorized to label stuff sinful or not, but I will tell you this, a whole lot of stuff's unwise, and that is a much better question to ask. You see, asking questions like, is this sinful, is the way a child would think. It is a child's question. Mommy, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I have this? Can I have that? Can I buy this? Can I go there? Can I say this? Can I watch that? Can I do that? Can I wear this? That's how children think. Adults do not ask, how far can I go? Adults ask, is this the wisest decision I can make in this situation? Another way of saying it for me is, look, life is difficult enough right? Marriage, thank you, thank you. Early service, they're all asleep, right? Marriage is difficult enough. Learning is difficult enough. Preaching and leading is difficult enough. Growing is difficult enough. Being a mentor and an example to people is difficult enough. I don't need to add any more complications to my day-to-day -day existence. I have enough so I can do anything but not everything's helpful I've been set free and I can do anything but you know what I know me and I'm not going to be controlled by anything and there are a lot of things that if I began to participate in them, it would complicate my emotional and relational and spiritual journey, and I cannot afford it. Hebrews 12, 1, 2. So then, with endurance, let's all run the race that is laid out in front of us since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us throw off any extra baggage and get rid of the sin. Why? Because it's wrong. Why? Because it's evil. Why? Because it's horrible. Why? Because it makes you a bad person. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, because it trips us up. And instead, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer, the beginner, and the perfecter of our faith. So here's, here's where we're going for the balance of this message, okay? I'm going to discuss with you three internal weights leading to external weights. Let me explain. Weights we carry on the inside weighing us down on the outside. Okay? Because here's what I know. Every external weight, you put, I've already named a few of them. You can fill in the blank with your own weights, with your own struggle, with your own trial, whatever it is. Every external weight you know you are carrying reflects an internal weight you probably don't know you're carrying. Let me say that again. Every external weight you know you're carrying, you can look at your life and see, reflects an internal weight you probably don't know you're carrying. What's happening on the outside today is because it was happening on the inside yesterday. It always comes out. I have never in my life struggled with one thing on the outside that wasn't an outgrowth of something happening inside me. And the church is notorious for talking about the outside stuff. And I'm doing everything I can as a pastor to dig for the inside stuff because this is what I've learned. Fix the inside stuff, and the outside stuff takes care of itself. All right? Thank you. Three internal weights, and they're probably not going to be the ones you expect. Number one, guilt. Guilt. Guilt says, I did wrong. Man, I was the kind of kid who had difficulty doing wrong, but acting as if I didn't. I don't know if anybody else is like that in here. Maybe you grew up that way, but that was me. I had a hard time faking it. On two different occasions, when I was eight, nine years old, I was convinced I was dying. One was in a tornado, and the other was in a snowstorm. And both times, I started confessing to my mom everything I did wrong at school, everything I was doing wrong in the neighborhood, everything that they didn't want me to do. I wanted to make sure I got everything out and atoned for before I died because I was absolutely convinced this was my last day on earth, and I knew that I wanted to make sure all of it was out, and at least my mom forgave me for it. Because I was convinced that's it. That's the way my brain and my conscience worked. Now, there are several kinds of guilt, and I think I'm familiar with all of them. But today, I want to give you two, okay, two that we're probably most familiar with. The first kind of guilt is when you are guilty and you feel guilty. Now, I don't need to spend a lot of time on this one. You get it. It's clear. When you do wrong, you feel badly for doing wrong. And this feeling guilty is far more than emotion. It is the internal voice of God if it has been trained well. It is the internal voice of God, truth written on our hearts in conflict with our behaviors. In other words, our behaviors are at odds with truth. And the tension between truth and our behaviors creates a friction experienced as guilt. And this kind of guilt, right there, is healthy. This kind of guilt is good. 
This kind of guilt says, hey, you did wrong, and you need to atone for that. You did wrong, and you need to ask for forgiveness. You did wrong. You need to make restitution. You did wrong. You need to stop doing wrong. That's a good and healthy kind of guilt. 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sadness produces a changed heart. That's a good thing. We'll leave that one alone because I think we get it, we felt it, and most often this kind of guilt helps us, doesn't hurt us. But there's another kind of guilt relevant to this message. And it is a kind of guilt I have struggled with my entire life. And it prevents us from changing. It prevents us from improving and growing and healing. And it is a guilt that I literally have had fistfights with probably ever since I was in middle school all the way up until a few years ago. And it's this. It's when you're not guilty, but you feel guilty anyway. This is the kind of guilt keeping a whole lot of us trapped and chained and bound. I know because I have dealt with it most of my life, and I know the negative fallout of carrying around false guilt. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? Everything we've done wrong. Here's the truth that ought to set us free. When you and I admit our wrong, our sins, God promises to forgive them and cleanse us from everything we have ever done wrong. Everything. This is not a constant confession to make sure that you stay in right standing with God. This is a once and forever confession. It is not a confession of every single sin, and God only forgives the sins you confess. And if you forget to confess a particular sin or you can't remember a particular sin, then God won't forgive you for that particular sin. And that's the way I thought when I was a kid. That's the way I thought as a middle school student. That's the way I thought as a high school student. And I would lay in my bed at night and confess every single sin that I possibly could think of throughout the day and then when I would get to the end I would throw in the and forgive me for all the other sins that I can't remember because I wanted to make sure I was good and I felt you know God remembers what I did yet because my conscience was so sensitive it didn't matter how much I confessed I still carried with me a sense of guilt daily. Man, I felt guilty for what I did. I felt guilty for what I didn't do. I felt guilty for what I thought, what I didn't think. I felt guilty for how I treated people, how selfish I was, how lazy I was, how much I like food, how much I like girls, how much I nice nice things, how much I like TV, how much I watched, how much I didn't read my Bible, my lack of prayer, how I prayed. You could put it on a list. I felt guilty about it. And I carried guilt with me all of the time for everything. Even today. Can I just tell you this? Even today. There are times when I'm watching a TV show or sitting around doing nothing or engaged in mindless conversations when all of a sudden I will feel guilt for nothing. Why? Because I lived under guilt so long, the residual effects are still being experienced today. Poisonous religion reverberates throughout your entire life. That's why I preach so hard against it. Warped religion is a source of mental illness. 
I'm absolutely convinced. Here's the danger of an overly sensitive conscience, and I had it. You rarely experience joy because you feel guilty for everything. You judge everybody else who seems happy because they ain't no way they're that good. And three, you begin craving what feels good and what brings fun. Keep that last one in mind because we're going to come back to it in a moment. Guilt. Some of you sitting in this room, some of you watching online, you carry a sense of guilt with you all the time. And it's a weight. And over time, that weight of guilt, if not confronted with truth, eventually will manifest itself on the outside. You'll see how in just a moment. The second internal weight, shame. If guilt says, I did wrong, shame says, I am wrong. Constant guilt, unchecked by truth, eventually spawns shame. Constant guilt, unchecked by truth, eventually gives birth to shame. Healthy guilt can be fixed. Confess, make restitution if necessary. Shame cannot be fixed. No amount of confession or restitution takes it away. It sits in the background of one's life, accusing, judging. It is never satisfied. It is never pleased. Shame is lonely. Often no one knows what you're going through. You just feel shame all the time. It doesn't matter how many sermons you hear. It doesn't matter how many songs you hear. It doesn't matter how many times people pray for you or pray with you. It doesn't seem to matter how much your wife tells you she loves you or your husband tells you he loves you or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your parents or your kids. It doesn't matter how many promotions you get, how much money you make. It doesn't matter. You're constantly carrying around with you this overall sense of shame. You just feel shame all the time. You can put on the makeup, wear the new dress, buy the truck, get the girlfriend, work out, lose weight, buy the house, whatever. But deep inside, you carry a sense of shame with you all the time. And it is personal. You feel worthless. You say things even subconsciously of, I'm filthy, I'm unwanted, I'm undeserving, I'm unloved. It's miserable. Shame convinces you there is nothing you can do to fix yourself. You are what you are. Nobody really wants you. Nobody's proud of you. Most people just tolerate you. It resides in the pit of your soul as a dull egg, slowly eating away at everything. And it leads to the third internal weight. And before we get to it, I want to show you something from the life of Jesus. This comes from a story that I've probably preached the most at Forest Park. It comes from John 4, typically referred to as the woman at the well, and I'm not going to walk through the story. Some of you have heard enough of it from me. You can tell it as well as I can. It's one of my favorite stories. But I do want to show you something very interesting. I want to show you the first two internal weights, guilt and shame, and how they lead to the third let me tell you the quick story here. The Samaritan woman comes to a well to draw water. She comes at noon, the hottest part of the day. Why? To avoid the group of women who no doubt came in the morning times. Why would this woman come 
early, not come early in the morning and instead come at the hottest part of the day. One reason. Shame. Now, why in the world is she ashamed? Well, when you read the story and you see the encounter Jesus has with her, you realize that the woman's been married five times. Now, folks, listen, I, I, I know we can choose a spouse poorly, and our first marriage doesn't work out, and so we try again. I've been a pastor a long time. I've counseled a lot of people. I know. And I know we are prone to mess even up the second one, and it falls apart. But I just, this based on experience, if you're working on your fifth marriage, there's other issues here. Okay? It's probably not that you just chose poorly five times. So anybody who's been married five times and is now living with someone, possibly a sixth husband, it's the talk around town. Why do you think she came at noon? rather than early in the morning when all the other women came. Now, I've heard, I don't know, but I've heard women sometimes like to talk about things like that. I don't know, but I've heard that it's not always the most pleasant group of people to be around when there's, you know, talk in the town. I don't know. So this woman feels what? Shame. And as she begins to speak with Jesus and he begins to uncover the truth of who she is, what do you think she feels? Guilt. So we have a woman who is feeling guilty and trying to cover her shame. And guilt and shame lead to the third internal weight and it is probably the most complicated and the most difficult one, and I want you to see it in the story before I call it out. Look at the exchange between Jesus and this woman. Jesus promises her she can have living water, and if she drinks from it, she'll never be thirsty again. Now, of course, he's talking about spiritual water, but it's not clear to her yet. And we pick up the conversation in verse 15, John 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and never have to come back to draw water. And Jesus said, go call your husband and come back here. Now, he did that intentionally. And the woman replied out of her guilt and out of her shame, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says back to her, you're right. You say, I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. You've spoken the truth. She spoke the truth, but she tried to throw him off her trail. Why? Guilt and shame, if left alone, will always produce the third internal weight, secrets. Listen to me very carefully. Guilt says I did wrong. Shame says I am wrong. And if you leave those two alone and they never are confronted by truth, you'll start living a life of secrets that says I can't let anybody know what I'm doing. 
You see, guilt and shame, unless exposed and dissolved by truth, wear us down. They deplete us to the point we are exhausted, and we begin looking for relief and joy and fun and pleasure and happiness and peace and sleep and rest and whatever feels good in the moment. Why? Because nothing else feels good. We walk around with perpetual guilt, and we are just pressed down upon by perpetual shame. Nobody can live under that pressure too long. Guilt and shame will discourage you. Guilt and shame will convince you that your best days are behind you. Guilt and shame poison every aspect of life. And because they do, we run from everything that makes us feel worse. And because of the way churches are designed and because of the false gospel that is presented in so many churches, people run away from church because it makes them feel worse. So they get away from church, God, Jesus, community groups, Bible, boundaries, friends, counseling, because the church has been notorious for taking people who are already feeling guilt and shame and basically crushing them. So guess what we run to? Anything distracting us. Anything making us feel better. Anything that will numb us out. So we find ourselves into greed and lying and gambling and affairs and getting high and overeating and stealing and whatever. You put it on the list. And they remain secrets in the backgrounds of our lives because you can't be honest and tell people the truth because you'll be rejected and you already feel bad enough. So you keep a secret running. I want you to listen to me very carefully. If that's you, if you have something sitting in the background of your life and it's a secret and you don't want anybody to know, and it's a secret not because you're such an evil, horrible, terrible, evil, mean person. It's a secret because guilt and shame have overcome you and you've never allowed truth to really confront those things and dissolve them. And you keep that secret running in the background of your life. Hear my heart. I have no condemnation for you. I have no rocks in my hand. I will never throw a rock at you. I will not. Any rock that I have in my hand must be dropped because I am not sinless and I am not spotless. And I can preach a message like this because I know the journey. I really do. But you don't have to continue with the guilt and shame and secrets. You don't. There's hope. And folks, after 30 years of doing this and after pastoring and leading people, I don't know of any hope other than the gospel. I don't know of anything that will dissolve guilt 
and shame. And when those crumble, secrets will be exposed and life and health and fresh air and fresh light will get in the background of your life and begin to dissolve that mess that we sometimes feed when nobody knows about it. Only thing I know is the gospel to do it. Well, does counseling help? Absolutely. Does talking with friends help? Yes. Does accountability help? Sure, if you're honest. All that stuff is good. But when the gospel sinks down into, from your ear down into your heart and the truth of who Christ has made you begins to dissolve that guilt and begin to dissolve that shame, it's amazing how secrets begin to just go away. Galatians 3. Let's look at this rundown of the gospel. Okay? Galatians 3, verse 26. You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Because of what Christ has done, you are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. You need to let that sit in you. You need to let that burn in you. You need to let that truth begin to set you free. Snap the chains. That's not it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. All of you are children of light and children of the day. We don't belong to night or darkness. You are children of the light. You are are children of the day. Scott, not me. You just, man, you just don't know the things I struggle with. You are children of the light. You are children of the day. First Peter 2, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 7. We have been ransomed through his son's blood and we have forgiveness for our failures based on his what? Overflowing grace. These passages are not telling you what you will achieve. Oh yeah, let me tell you, when you deal with your guilt and then you deal with your sins and your, your, your shame and then you deal with your secrets and you finally work all this stuff out, then eventually you then will be ransomed. No, 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 you are ransomed right now in your mess in your darkness in your guilt in your shame in your secrets you are you have been it is a finished fact first peter 2 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. It is a finished, done fact. That's who you are. After, after what I thought of last night, Scott, after what I struggle with, after all my guilt and after all my shame, after all the secrets, that's who you are. Romans 8. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death 
or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. Let me ask you a question. Are you created? Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. Folks, these are passages that are eternally fixed as God's Word that promises who we are in Christ Jesus. It is the only thing I know powerful enough to dissolve the guilt that we carry around and the shame we carry around. And when they are dissolved, secrets go away. We'll get into part three next week. Let's pray. Father, every person gathered in this place, every person coming into the next service, everybody listening online, Father, we struggle with so much junk. We get lost in weeds. We get lost in the shadows of life. We're trying to be dads and moms. We're trying to be people who work hard. We're trying to pay our bills and pay our taxes and love our families and have some vacation and have some joy in life. And it's hard. It's hard. And we carry around so much condemnation and so much guilt and so much shame and we find ourselves walking over into the weeds way too deeply. We find ourselves getting lost in the shadows and then we can't even find the light anymore. We find ourselves tripped up and falling down in the race of life. And we forget. We forget that even when we were sinners, your son Jesus died for us. We forget even when we were the ones ultimately who put him on the cross even when he was on the cross his love was so great his mercy so incredible that he even forgave those who did it we forget all of that and we get wrapped up in ourselves and we get wrapped up in this mess around us and we get ourselves addicted and bound and we forget that we're children of light we forget that we have been redeemed we forget that you have set us free. Father, take your truth and drive it deep into our souls and into our minds and snap the chains of guilt and shame and let the secrets go away. And may we live as men and women of light, not darkness. Thank you for your grace and mercy. It is abundant. In Jesus' name. Amen. Man. Hey, as you leave today, our uh, First Impressions team members have a basket. And if you didn't get a little chain last week, we just have these little keychains, and they have a little hanging chain on them. It's just a reminder that your chain has been snapped. You have been set free. And every time you look at it, if you put it on your keychain or you hang it somewhere, it reminds you that you have been set free. Now let's live as children of freedom. Have an incredible day. We'll see you soon.